You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody. Welcome. I'm Bart Campolo, the humanist chaplain at the University of Cincinnati. And normally at this point in the podcast, the host thanks his corporate sponsors. Um, But you know the drill here. We don't have corporate sponsors. We've got listeners. Listeners who support the show through Patreon or listeners who support the show by spreading the the word around to other people and and sharing the podcast, sharing episodes they like, and, and listeners who support us by sending nice emails and telling us what they like and what they think we should do next. And so to all of you listeners, thank you. And thank you also because that's a lot faster than doing some advertisement for some mattress company. So uh, gives me more time to talk to you about stuff. The thing I want to talk to you but just before we get to the conversation, because we'll get to the conversation, and it's a really unique conversation. But before we get there, um, I was down in Tennessee a couple of weeks ago for a thing called NanoCon, one of those secular conferences. And it was kind of interesting because it – I'd never been to one of those before. And Marty and I drove down together and, you know, as we're going into the venue, we're going through the parking lot, and we kept seeing these cars that were plastered with secular bumper stickers. You know the kind I'm talking about. You know, with the Darwin fish eating the Christian fish or, you know, some, you know, godless heathen in the car, you know. And it was funny because as we're seeing them, Marty said to me, like, you know, when we were Christians and we would go to Christian conferences— they had different bumper stickers. But she said, I was always uncomfortable with those bumper stickers. Like, I never wanted to be associated with, like, that kind of bumper sticker evangelism. And she's like, now that we're secular, I, I don't feel that comfortable with these bumper stickers either. I guess we're just not bumper sticker people. Um, and it's true. that There's some kind of an in-your-faceness about that way of communicating that I just don't think is particularly productive. Um, and it was funny because the conference itself, there were a lot of wonderful people there. Some friends of ours were there. Some podcast people were there. Some of the Humanize Me listeners were there. But um, I went to a couple of sessions. I went to this one session where there are two kind of big shot atheist leaders, uh, Matt Dillahunty and a guy named uh, Anthony Magnabosco. Anthony runs something called Street Epistemology, which is this kind of interesting way of encountering believers on the street or on a campus while tabling and sort of engaging them in conversation and sort of showing them that the way that they know things isn't the right way to know things. And and, and Matt Dillahunty is one of those guys who debates lots of atheists. And it's, it was funny because in the course of his presentation, he actually, I don't know if he was quoting me or somebody else, but he, he said something that I often, that I've said like in public settings where I've said like, you know, you can't reason somebody out of something that they weren't reasoned into in the first place. You know, I wasn't reasoned into Christianity. I was loved into it. Um, and he, uh, he quoted, he quoted somebody saying that maybe it was me. And then he said, that's ridiculous. You know, you can reason people out of things that they were loved into or born into. And I, you know, I knew where he was going with that, but I just realized that that whole eagerness to disabuse believers of their beliefs. I just thought, like, do you not know any of these people? Because unless you have a wonderful community 
and an easy sense of meaning to, to deliver them into, unless you're sure that you can get them turned on to embracing the finitude of human existence and, and with the same kind of joy and energy that they embrace heaven, I'm not, I'm not sure... I'm not sure it's the kindest thing to do. I'm also not sure it makes any sense to spend a whole lot of time disabusing people of believing in supernaturalism when you could wipe all the supernaturalism off this planet today and tomorrow half the people would reinvent it because it's absolutely natural for people to believe in supernatural forces. I mean, we are evolved to do so. It is a wonder of education and science that any of us don't believe in supernatural forces. Um... But it was it was interesting to me. The, the day after the conference, I, got, I had breakfast with a bunch of people that had been there, and they were all like talking about how they wanted to they wanted to promote this other kind of humanism, this this humanism that's really about promoting loving relationships and and human values, and that's built not around that that defines itself not in in, in opposition to anything else. Um, but rather just says like, hey, we want to pursue these values and, and who wants to get on board? And that was a really exciting conversation. And I think there's an increasing number of people that want to define humanism not in terms of beliefs, but in terms of values and not in opposition to any, any supernaturalism, but just, hey, we're over here doing this other thing. And uh, if that's not working for you, come on over because we're going to pursue goodness in a, in a rational, secular way rather than in, uh, in a supernatural way. The next thing that I was down in Tennessee for was I was at East Tennessee State University speaking to their new humanist group. They have a new student chapter of humanists and they, were, they sponsored a screening of um, my, the film I made with my dad leaving my father's religion. And it was, what a delightful group of young people. And once again, it was a cool showing of the movie, which by the way, if you're interested, that movie is now available for streaming, as you probably know, um, at campolafilm.com. Um, and the, or you could just find it through my website, bartcampolo.org. Either way, you'll get there. Um, and it's just been fun hearing from people that are really enjoying that conversation and that are watching it with their family members who are on the other side of the faith divide and finding that it gives them a lot of really great stuff to talk about. Um, one thing, I got a note from John Wright, uh, the erstwhile producer and director of that movie, and he said, you know, when your friends watch that movie, it would really help me if they put a review on Amazon Prime because that's where you can purchase it. And so if you watched it on Amazon Prime, which you probably, if you're streaming it, that probably is where you're doing it. Just put a review up. It, it'll make John happy, and that'll make me happy. Um, yeah, that's it. That's enough talk for now. What we're going to do now is I'm going to take you into a long conversation that I had with, you know, speaking of engaging Christians, um, I, th- this friend of mine, this new friend of mine, um, he goes by the moniker of Science Mike. His name is Mike McCarg, and he was a, a, a very hardcore fundamentalist Christian for a long time. Then he was an atheist for like seven years. And then he had what he describes as a very spiritually powerful experience. And he ended up, I don't know what he ended up. He says he re-embraced Christianity, but when you listen to him, as I talk to him, 
he doesn't seem to believe in any supernatural force. It, it almost feels like he just wants to call the universe God the same way I call my car Betsy because he feels like it'll make him treat it better and it'll make him feel better about being in it. I mean, that's me saying it. That's not him. You'll hear a lot of him because he and I, I was out in California. I stopped by his house. He, he has a huge podcast. His Science Mike podcast is gigantic. And he has one called The Liturgist, which is even bigger. And I, 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 I went to a live showing of his, a, a live um, taping of, of his podcast, the, the Ask Science Mike one. And there were like 600 people in the room. And I was stunned by how many of these sort of hanging on by, the, by, by a thread Christians just love this guy because he listens and he speaks to them with kindness and gentleness. And I don't think he's trying to, trying to get anybody to believe anything differently. I think he's just trying to help people make peace with their own, what he calls it, their own faith experience. I, I would say with their own feelings as, they, as they're shifting and moving in their understanding. And, you know, I guess he's in that tradition with Brian McLaren and uh, Rob Bell and and uh, Tony Jones and my friend Doug Paget, and and sometimes I get frustrated with those guys for not just not just coming over and saying like I'm done with I'm done with that language I'm done with that narrative, but watching Mike work this room, I thought you know what I understand. There's a lot of people out there that these guys are making a difference for, and they're helping them make make meaning in their lives, and uh, and are sort of I I don't know softening them up, making them making them the kind of Christians that humanists like us can really relate to in a positive way and feel a real sense of camaraderie with, and I, you know I meet a lot of humanists who say listen that was a stage I passed through and Science Mike helped me along the way, and so. Uh, I, but I will tell you this. I mean, if you listen to this con- conversation, what you'll figure out really quickly is I love this guy because he's warm and kind and I think he's doing something good in the world. And so honestly, he did me a much bigger favor by having me on his podcast where there were like he has like a quarter of a million listeners um, than I'm doing him putting him on my podcast. But I just, I just want you to meet him because he's the, kind of thinker and the kind of people lover that makes me think that our species might make it after all, or at least make it a little farther than we thought. So here's me in Science Mike. I hope you dig it. Maybe we should like both introduce ourselves we to our respective audiences. <laughs> yeah. Like your, your listeners like, who is, who's this deep voice person? You know, uh, I, 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 I don't know if that's true. I, like, because like, when you were describing your audience, as especially on that what, the liturgist show, yes, I think probably there's a lot of like, I think that both people that listen to my podcast also listen to that <laughs> that show. Um, so that's that's good. All right. Well, uh, so they know they'll know. Like, I, I, my guess, I'm guessing they'll know. You. In fact, the reason I reached out to you, okay. back in the day, yes. like six months ago, was because I keep I, I kept getting emails from people who were like. You should talk to this guy. Like you'd love this guy. Like people who listen to my podcast, I've been listening to this guy, and so I was like, "Wow!" If you've heard, you know, if you've, you know, I just hear about you so much from all my people. I was like, I should mm. probably, I should probably reach out to this person. That's incredible. Uh, Is that surprising you? 
it's just cool. Yeah, um, I mean, because the work what I found in this phase of my life is uh, my work is very public, very media driven. So without me doing anything, like people who have been whose whose work and whose teaching or research has been critical at junctures in my life. I've end up encountering through that right. same you dynamic. You get to talk to people, yeah. And it's like, what? You know what I mean? So I literally, when you emailed me, I got up from this chair and I ran down the hallway to go tell Jen. I was like, oh, you will not believe who just emailed me. So, you know what I mean? Like, very it strange just... to me, yeah. The, and the weird thing about, like, like what I was saying, is in my life right now, virtually, like people from my podcast... They'll just write me a letter, and I'll write back to them. Yeah, like I have, like, like it takes too much mm. of my time, but like I still haven't gotten to the place where there's there's no filter between me and and them. And what's more is most of the people that listen to my podcast, like I've hung out with, I mm. know them from somewhere. Wow. And so, when they write to me and say, "Science Mike, I've been listening to this podcast, or I read this book, or whatever it is," like I take that really seriously. I'm like, you touched. You touched Nikki mm. Bellinger. Mm. Well, Nikki Bellinger, like I've known her since she was in college. Mm. And like she's had a really hard time and you were really helpful to her. So like it's not so much like he's an influencer. Like, I, you know, I, have you seen the way to Sam Harris thing? It's like you touched a person I know. Right. Wow. You know, so I, I, don't, I don't get very Like <laughs> all the people I touch, I, like I know by name. Um, mm. And so that's really different than I think when you get to the level I, I did a I had a conversation with um with Hank Green. Oh he, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh do you know do you, like see the, everybody knows who I Hank subscribe Green's. to like five of YouTube course. channels. He would be your he's... he would be your like <laughs> yeah. I am not worthy. <laughs> now here's the thing. Hank Green writes me a letter. Right, writes me an email and he says, Hey, I'd like to come on your podcast. Oh my gosh. So I write to him and I say, Dear Hank, I don't know this guy from Adam. I don't listen to any media. I don't know anything. I said, Dear Hank Tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, cause usually, like, I ask people to, like, I don't usually just allow anyone, like, I just, people don't just invite themselves on my podcast. And, and I was like, what is it that you want to talk about? Hmm. And he writes back and he says, actually, Bart, I was, I have a fairly large audience. I just thought it might help you. Like, <laughs> I really like your podcast. And, and, and I, I just, I, I asked the people oh. in my audience, who should I reach out to? And they suggested you. So like, I'm just like, so then I go on the Google and I'm like, oh snap. You know, yeah, he, he's like, okay. It's like if you didn't know who Oprah was, <laughs> right? And, and she's like, I was thinking that maybe like we, I could talk to you about your book. And you're like, yeah, you know, I've got, <laughs> I've got bowling that night. That's amazing. You know, so, but, but in any case, like when you're talking with Hank, he, his reach is so far beyond right. his not like he knows people individually who are representational samples, mm -hmm. but his audience is too big for him to actually have a relationship with him at this point. You know, a, a direct relationship. There was a, a and you're probably there. There was a grief for me when I when you realized you crossed that. over. Yeah, yeah, because I used to reply to every e every single email that came right. in. Right, and it took Until you more, that's all more and more time, that's and then I was day. spending, you know, I would spend five hours a day 
replying to emails. And my wife was like, this is, no. This yeah. is, and, I was, and, and, and I was not getting caught up in five hours no. a day in email. And I've been knowing that for five years. Yeah. I, 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 I got written up in the New York Times Magazine mm-hmm. about a year and a half ago, and that just crushed me. Like all of a sudden you have a thousand emails in your box mm-hmm. and I just didn't know what to do. And I, I botched it. Like it was my moment of opportunity where I could have developed and I just, I just botched mm-hmm. it. Like I didn't know what to do. I, I ended up losing half those emails, like literally in, yeah. a, in, in, a, in a snafu with my e- Gmail account. Where does that come from? The, what? Is that unique to kind of post evangelicals this, uh, this feeling that you are failing a stranger if, if you, you don't, don't read and respond to their email. Well, you know, because I have other people that do public work well, who don't who don't feel that way. No. They've never felt that compulsion. You know what I think it is? Is I was listening to you. I went to see you in Cincinnati, and uh, and you because and you started out by talking about when you started your work. Like you were just felt like you were listening to people mm-hmm. and people were just resp- like, they just needed to be listened to. Mm-hmm. And I think that the letters I get are from people who are almost always saying your angle or your voice. I've been looking for that. I haven't found that. And, you know, and they'll describe the places they've been looking and why. it. Did. And so you feel like it, it if, like if somebody came into my bicycle shop and said, I need a, I need a bike tube. I don't feel like, like you can get a bike tube at the shop down the street right. or the one next door. Or like, mm-hmm. But like if you come to me and say like, you are the Mr. Stradivarius. Like you're the only person that makes the thing I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. You feel a lot more of a load. But the other thing is I think that it's a certain kind of person that ends up being a post-Christian minister Mm. there are a lot of angry post-christians or bitter post-christians but like i think you can't end up being a post-christian minister or community builder um or purveyor of hope Mm. without having a certain kind of heart and i think it's that same heart that that makes it very hard to not answer somebody's email Mm. now and i don't it's funny i say you can't you know post-christian and like I guess ostensibly you're not post-Christian. <laughs> like, oh, you're, 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 gosh. You, you were post-Christian and now you're like, you, like you've re-embraced the word God, but like, I don't know if you mean anything different by it than what I mean by like universe or reality. Um, but you, but you're post whatever it is that hurts people. Yes. And so they're still, they're still coming at you. I, I think, a fair way to say it is a majority of Christians in America would consider me post-Christian. <laughs> I think that's that's safe to say. But you know what? Uh, there was this write-up about my book on a on a fairly progressive uh, website, wherein the author of the book review lamented my influence as a sign of the coming death of the church. Um. Yeah, that's so interesting. Which might be fair. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, because it's funny because when I first when I first encountered you, I was prone not to like you. Yeah, and not just out of jealousy. Um, <laughs> no, because you do feel that way sometimes. Like you see somebody like like I went to that thing with my wife. Yeah, and halfway through it, I look at my wife and go like, 
he's he's doing what I do, and you know, in the way that you're talking and, and gently mm-hmm. moving people in these ways. And, and she looked over and she said, "Yeah," and he's a lot better at it than you are. Oh. And I said, "I." She didn't mean it in a mean way. I was like, "I know, I know. This is so, like it was. It was both exciting because, mm. like, you're like, this is because the the way you listen to the people that ask you questions and hear what's really behind it and and speak back to what they're really asking instead of looking for a way you can score a point off what they said mm-hmm. this is very touching to me it, it, it was like but you know we were just really moved by watching what was going on and and so i and i felt like i just i, I did a thing with Brian McLaren's an old friend of mine, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you've encountered Love him. Love Brian. Yeah. And he and I did a thing recently at the Wild Goose Festival last summer about how to talk with friends and family members who believe very differently than you do. Mm-hmm. And even though he's still ostensibly in the camp, um, you know, he's he's on the other side of a lot of lines from a lot of his family and friends, and of course I am. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and I, you know, I, I ended up on the one hand being so touched and amazed by what he was doing, and then just like grinding my teeth and going like, "Why don't you come over all the way?" Yeah, there are so many people out in the world beyond Christendom who have no pastors, <laughs> who have no community builders, who have no sort of pastoral counselors. And I see like Rob Bell and you and Brian McLaren and Pete Rollins and all these like winsome communicators. And I'm like, there are, and and they all will say to me like, well, we're trying to make the church a safer place. And we're trying, you know, like, like there's all these people. And I'm like, there's a thousand people ministering to people in that kind of title zone space. And there's nobody on the other side. But then when I, I, like, I feel so lonely out there in the like, openly secular right let's build a loving community built around pursuing goodness in a secular way yes but then i went to your thing and it wasn't and and i watched you do your thing and it would have pissed me off except there were 500 people there or more very few of whom attend a church right yeah and i thought you know what those people like evidently there's more of them than i thought and I thought like, okay, maybe, and, and I thought to myself, the way they were talking with you, I was like, they don't have a lot of options either. Mm. Mm. And so then I like, then my anger went away a little bit. Well, I think. Does that make sense? Strategically? Uh, yeah. Uh, if you imagine like a line and over here is Rob and Brian and over here is you and someone like Ryan Bell, you know, the, the, the secular uh, openly secular, open secular, but but a positive outlook. Community builders, yeah, and not anti, and not to, and not anti-Christian or yes. anti-theist or even anti-religion. Right. My, what I'm trying to do is take a eraser to the line between those groups. Yeah. I'm just I'm so over the atheist versus the. I, first of all, I'm neither. Um, I, 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 so I have no use for the atheist versus theist debate because. I don't lack a belief in any god or gods like an atheist would, uh, but I don't assert a being or personal god like a theist must. And so what we've done in the West uh, is dichotomize 
spiritual experiences as falling on either side of a dichotomy of atheist or theist. And I think for me and for literally millions of Americans, that's an absurd construct that doesn't reflect our lived experience. And um, so I'm trying to say what Sam Harris encounters in meditation, he elects to not describe as a spiritual experience, and that is fine. There, there's a, there is a perfectly valid, reasonable, logical, rational reasons to remove religious and spiritual imagery from a meditative style experience. There are other people who stand on a mountaintop after a hike and they look out and they feel a connection to something. And they, they don't want to connect it to traditional religious language because of the history of violence and oppression that has happened so often with religion, which may have in, impacted them personally. But they also don't want to rationally deconstruct that experience into a set of labels and categories, right? So this is like the largest, the fastest growing group uh, in religious identification in America. What we're finding is America is not getting all that much more secular. It is getting less religious and certainly less institutionally so. So you have this middle space, and that's what I'm interested in, because all of these people, what they share in common with openly secular people no, 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 is a lack of community. Those people in the middle, that's who I'm after. Yeah. Like, that's who I'm trying to draw in to community. And I'm not trying to draw them into using, like, harsh language or, or anything like that. I'm trying to say to them, listen, you still need, like, I think of religion as co a collective effort to answer life's ultimate questions. Mm -hmm. Like, where do we come from? What happens when we die? What makes life meaningful? What makes something right or wrong? All these, all, like, these are the things people need to figure out. And I think we're, we're sort of evolutionarily prone mm -hmm. to go supernatural. Mm -hmm. like, That's, yes, like, Oxford would agree with you. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think that evolution, like supernaturalism is very common. Like you could wipe, I mean, Dawkins could wipe out all the religion in the world today and tomorrow some people would decide to believe in god again yes like they, they would invent it like all over again the flying spaghetti monster would become a real deity in people's minds <laughs> something you know, yeah right something would happen there because people you know because people want certainty they want they're looking for explanations right they're looking for stories and and, and now now the nobel laureates would not mm. like the more educated you mm -hmm. are the more kind of understanding you get, the more perspective you have. Like, the, like, not going super, go, not going supernatural is uh, like it's an overcoming of human nature. Mm -hmm. Like, we're also violent by nature, right? You know, and like, but we're less violent. Stephen Pinker tells us than yes. we've ever been before. Yes. And you go, like, that is a, that is an accomplishment of civilization. Mm. And not believe, not going supernatural when you don't know what's going on. That's an accomplishment of, of civilization. Hmm. But there's still these ineffable experiences. There's still these transcendent moments. There's still the sense of standing on that mountaintop that you described and wanting to thank somebody yeah, or right. wanting to praise something or wanting to celebrate. 
And what I want to say is like, you don't have to go supernatural Hmm. in order to embrace that kind of spirituality. Hmm. Like it's a, there's such a thing as secular spirituality. Mm -hmm. Um, And and when you're around people that, so so I'm with you that like, there's a dividing line that needs to be erased, Mm -hmm. but I don't want there to be one like, well, there's you over there doing the, you know, kind of like secular, secular humanism. And then there's these spiritual, but not religious people. Hmm. And I sort of go like, I think it's the same. I think it's the same people. Hmm. I think that the difference is, is that you got one set of people that are really afraid to quantify or to ritualize or to put some music to or some poetry to the experience of being overwhelmed by the reality of nature Mm. in a secular way. Because they're like, if we put poetry to that and if we put ritual to that, we're going to end up sliding down the slippery slope to the Southern Baptist Convention. Mm. And they're not. They don't have to. So that's where... I found you. So I'm was publicly a Southern Baptist and privately an atheist and did a lot of um, searching online. I couldn't talk to anybody in my life. So it was mainly discussion threads online with atheists where I would say, but what about morality? Yeah, yeah. How do we have any morality? And um, I was lucky to find communities where there were some pretty nurturing post-theists and atheist-leaning folks who wouldn't uh, mock my questions, because that can happen online. There can be a mockery about sincere questions and deconstruction and transition. Can I sidebar here? Sure. Like, I'm one of the few people you'll know that has no online life. Mm. And like, I think some, in some ways my, when people say like, your, your form of secular humanism is really different. And I go like, I think it may simply like, I wasn't, I was never in that space. But your work is represented. So when I was talking about, but you know, one of the things I value about the church is the capacity to be active in community and not just in an insular way, but at their best churches, church congregations turn outward and and serve a, a local community that's not membership driven. And so someone said, well, what about Tony Campolo? I was like, or excuse me, what about Bart Campolo? And I said, who's that? Because I didn't know who Tony Campolo sure. was. And right, because uh, you grew up in Southern Baptist. I grew up in Southern Baptist. <laughs> and he, the, so I, I'm, you know, heard of you far before I ever heard of your, your father. And at first, didn't realize you were related until I got a book. Anyway, so but they said he's a a a chaplain at USC. I said, why are you talking to me about a chaplain when I'm making a Christian atheism? I said. He's a secular humanist. He's a humanist chaplain. I went, oh my gosh. What is that? So, right. So then I started uh, digging through your work and, and, and people talk about your work. And and five minutes later, when you had dug through all my work. <laughs> but that's actually what helped me get a vision. So for, first, what I went all in on was building secular community Communities. as an atheist. Yeah. So I started devoting my online time to finding every thread where someone said, I don't know what I believe anymore. 
and going, it's going to be okay. okay. We're going to be okay. If you decide there's a God again, that's going to be fine. If you decide there's no God, it's going to be fine. I've heard rumors that there's life right. on the other you side. Can, either way. And yeah. then a lot of people, but I'm a pastor, and there's nothing else I can do. Like, wh- who's going to hire me? What job can I do? Uh, I went to seminary. A very real concern. I, right. I, stud- I, I don't know what I would do with my life. And, um, and so I would devote hours a day. Those are the emails. To this, right. Well, this pre-email that nobody knew who I was. So I'm just on discussion boards, like actively reaching out, recommending books they can Listening read. To people. Try this video. Yeah. And then just kind of responding honestly from my own experience. I would say, well, listen, like my wife doesn't know I'm an atheist, so I understand your, your yeah. fear. But just literally to try to say to someone, you're not alone, which is like the animating energy of my entire work still. And that came from hearing that there was a humanist chaplain oh, at USC. I, you, you couldn't make me any happier. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, just because I, I like when I when I, I heard you tell the second half of that story when you're in Cincinnati about getting on these boards and listening to people yeah. and sort of you know and 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 Marty and I were talking about that and just saying like what an important thing to do like mm-hmm. just to listen you know because I feel like that's a lot of what I do is I can just listen. Yeah. And, and hear people talking to me about stuff. And uh, the thought that, 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 that behind that was a, was a moment of like, well, the, there's, cause there's a possibility that it really will be okay. Cause mm. I feel like that's, mm. you know, that's the animating energy of my work is like yeah. to sort of say, you like all that stuff you loved about being, cause I loved being a Christian. Mm-hmm. All that stuff you loved about being a Christian is still available to you. Mm. Um, it's still available to you. And, and last night they showed that movie. Um, the movie because my dad and I made they made it. Somebody made a documentary about my dad and my relationship. And um, oh yeah, that's right. I I gave you that DVD, which is still in its shrink wrap. Um, uh, no, I'm kidding. No, it's open. Um, but it's funny that I gave you a DVD because like who has a DVD player? <laughs> I've got an Xbox that plays <laughs> DVDs. I had to figure that out, but I was like, oh, I can actually play that. So they showed that movie. Yeah. At, at USC. And uh, I went to it, and afterwards they did a Q&A. And one of the people there was the leader of the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship on, at USC's mm-hmm. work as a graduate student there. Um, and, he, and, and he raised his hand and he said, if there was one thing you would want to say to the evangelical community now, because he says, you seem, to, you seem to have sorted out a lot of stuff with your dad, but like, if there's one thing you wish we know, what I ended up saying, I'd never said this before, but I said, When you see my fellowship on campus, I think when I was a Christian, I was raised to believe that those guys might think that they love each other mm-hmm. and that they might think they have a sense of purpose and they might think that their relationships have the same quality as ours, but they can't possibly have the same quality because they're not infused with the love of God and the Holy Spirit isn't guiding that. Mm-hmm. And I said, if there's one thing I would tell you, having been in both, it's in our little community of people that, not all secular people, not all atheists, not those angry ones, but like these people that are getting together, seeking to build loving relationships and to fight for social justice and to cultivate a sense of wonder and gratitude. The quality of love, the hugs are exactly the same. Mm. 
like mm. like the sense of I've got to drive through the night to get there because like my friend needs me there. <laughs> I said now, and I said to him, I said, if you're right about God, then what I would say is then the Holy Spirit is at work in us. My dad calls me an anonymous Christian. Then that's <laughs> then, then that's God. Then, then uh, like I'll grant you, like if you're right about God, what I, all I'm saying is is that the same God stuff that's happening in your relationships is happening over here. And and if and if it turns out there is no personal God, all I'm saying is is that 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 thing that you figured out how to access through all these rituals and all these relationships, mm. we've it it works the same way. Right. But when I was a Christian. I was terrified of losing my faith because I thought I loved that substance, right. whatever you call it. Yes, I yes. loved it, and I, I and 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 the and the thought that I was going to have to walk away from it was probably the saddest part mm. of the whole thing for me. It wasn't losing out on heaven. By the time I gave up, you know, like the idea of a, a heaven goes fast, doesn't it? Well, you know, because <laughs> like because like ultimately heaven had gone long before Jesus went. Right. Like yes. the, the idea that we live in an eternal utopia, like, like it, it, on the face of it is so weird. Like, you know, you're going to see your grandmother. How old will she be? Like, how old right. will you be? Like, right. you know, w- you know, like it, none of it made any sense to me, even when I was a Christian. Hmm. But this business about losing the fellowship, that was as real as the Young Life Club down the block. And so the thought of losing that was, was devastating. Mm-hmm. And, and so I feel like one of my big, animating things is just to say to people you know what you don't have to lose that like you can build that around an an abiding an, an abiding belief that this life is the only one that you have so let me ask you this you're building community yeah i'm building community i have had a much less success facilitating others and building their own communities. So people listen to the podcast. They feel less alone. I do an event in a city. They all come see me. They get back in their cars. They leave. It goes away. They listen to the podcast again. And I, I love that the podcast would bring someone comfort. But uh, I want to see people. That's what Hank Green said. Getting together and hugging each other and 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 doing things in their community together right and uh people ask me for that and every attempt i've made has just not been very successful at all and the church has this pretty incredible pipeline of training people to go into a place and establish and build a community um and I'm not interested in planting institutional churches. There's there's little that interests me less. And believe me, uh, denominations wave money at me and beg me to plant churches. Uh, but I don't want to help establish communities that have some, you've got to believe these things to belong. Um, have you had any success in teaching others how to kind of build their own way to gather together. I hope so. I, I but like back up when you say I the church has this pipeline of training people to do that. Do they really? I, yes. 
But what is that pipeline? Like, like you grew up in church. Mm-hmm. You were a Southern Baptist deacon. Mm-hmm. So you were one of the people that went from being a, a part of the congregation to being one of the people that's crafting, that's, that's crafting that community, that's mm-hmm. curating that mm-hmm. community, right? How did, how did you learn how to do that? Because you're, I mean, and, and you can, you stand up in front of a group of people and you create community in a room of strangers in 15 minutes. Okay. How did you learn how to do that? Watching people do it. Right. And, and so did I. Hmm. I watched people do it, number one. And I was fortunate because I got to hang out with some of the people that were doing it. And they would take me in the back room and show me how the sausage was made. Hmm. And so, hmm. so what happens is, is that I was talking to Ryan Bell yesterday mm-hmm. about secular chaplaincy because he's he's sort of taking on the mantle of being. A I human. just found that out, and yeah. I am so happy. Yeah, and he was sort of saying like, we, you know, how do you how did you do it? Like, and, and like he's a smart guy; he'll figure it out. But like, he was sort of like, can you, you know, can you give me any shortcuts? Like, because I heard you don't go to the Monday night like the, the student group met on Monday nights, and he's like, I heard that you hardly ever go went to those. He assumed that I was running them. Mm. I was like, no, no, no. I ran the Sunday night meeting. I ran a Sunday dinner, right? And I told the kids like, I run that thing. I give the talk. I plan the, I plan the activities. Like you're, you just bring, you just come along. But then the Monday night thing they did, but I would meet with them on Wednesdays to plan their Monday night thing. Mm. And it was in the planning meetings like, like they would say, I would, they would say, well, we're going to, we're going to have this speaker. And I was like, who's going to introduce him? And they're like, I don't, I was like, how are you going to arrange the chairs in the room? Mm. Okay. Like, are you going to do Q and A afterwards or, or are you going to break up into small groups? And, and, and they were like, why are you obsessing over the minute details of how the, I'm like, <laughs> it's the whole thing. It's the whole thing. <laughs> I remember the first time I got them together and I said, listen, I, I, I sat in on one of your meetings and I said, at the beginning of the meeting, everybody was talking to their friends and I said, the five of you were talking with each other. You're not supposed to talk to each other at those mm. meetings. You're supposed to talk to each other here and then at those meetings, you're working in the room mm. looking for who's not got anybody to talk to, introducing people to people that you think would be good. And they were like, oh, okay. Like they, they're smart kids, but like they had never seen it done. Because they didn't grow up in church, right, 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 and they and and they had never they had never seen. I I, I gave my first talk at one of those dinners, a little ten minute talk. Afterwards, one of the kids came up and said, "Was that a sermon?" Because like, you told that story, and I I I cried, mm-hmm. you know, and like I didn't expect that at a secular meeting, mm. and like you know, it was an emotional moment like you know trying to craft an emotional moment tell a story in such a way as it impels somebody to action and i was real open about how i was doing it but the point is mike you you didn't learn that stuff in seminary i didn't go to seminary you learned that stuff by being part of it so the question is how are you as a podcaster going to plant you know you have thousands hundreds of thousands of people listening you go like well you know what you'd have to do you'd have to do one and invite like three smart people to come and do it with you for a year, hmm. and then they'd know what you were doing. Because you know how to do it like, I mean, you do it as easily as a, 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 a frog jumping off a log. Um, 
I'm trying to, you know, do the Southern thing. Like, I don't know, I don't know if you caught that. It totally works. Yeah, yeah. Did, yeah. You, did you feel that? I did. Yeah. 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 Um, but that's where I, I, like, you learn it by seeing somebody do it. That's why I'm pissed off that Brian and you and Rob and all those people are doing all this great media stuff, but you're not planning anything like small and local. And you go like, but like. Rob Bell shouldn't be doing one little thing. He can't make a big impact that way. And I'm like, yeah, he could if he did one little thing in his in his in his backyard. And every year he had like five young men and women who were on his intern team, and they worked with him in that in that little local community for a while. And then he said, all right, you got to go. And then they would know how to do it elsewhere. So when I was at USC, every year I would have a, a student leadership team. Those are the people that when they graduate are going to run the world's best book group. Those are the people that when they graduate mm. are going to start a little a little weekly dinner party that's going to be about about pursuing goodness. Mm. I mean like cuz they they know how to do it cuz they did it. And so you, I don't think we can do a series of podcasts. Cuz like it, it's feel like it, like imagine doing a podcast how to how to, how to drive a stick shift. Like how do you know when to shift from second to third? You got to mm. be in the car with somebody and they've watched and, and you're like, now, hit the mm. clutch now. And you just, you learn it by doing it. To your credit, I tried to learn to drive a stick shift by reading about how stick shifts and transmissions you're operate. You're such a nerd. And it was a dismal failure. And my dad said, you just got to feel it. And I'm like, because he's like, Shh. I was like, what is the criterion for when you shift from first to second? He was like, you, you, when you, you feel, feel it. it, man, and um, and and how do you know when the guy coming up to you who's saying he'd like to help out with the uh, with the cooking? How do you know if he's the the scary, crazy control freak who's gonna who's gonna alienate everybody out on your volunteer team mm -hmm. or not? And you go like, you go like, well, well, how do you know? And I go like, I've been at it for thirty years. Yeah, I can feel that guy. And, you, and it says, well, how's a 22-year-old how's a going to learn? And I'm like, they're going to stand next to me. And after that guy walks away, I'm going to go like, okay, now did you see this? Mm. Did, you, did, you, did you see the way he, the way he asked? Mm -hmm. Like, that's, that's a red flag. And then they're going to try it, and sometimes it'll work. So, like, it's, it's an imperfect science, but like building a community, is like, it's like putting together a band. Mm. It's like putting together an orchestra. It's, like, you know, it's about people, and it's about vibing the room and like being in a room full of people and knowing when people are getting uncomfortable with how long the person is talking and realizing you've got to find a way to cut that thing off. I, am I, you know what I'm saying. I do. And yeah. so, and so all these people are sort of saying to me, I have a podcast audience of like 10 million people and they're all really lonely and I can't figure out as a podcaster how to help them find the friendships that they want. And I go like, yeah, you know what? That's the limit of the podcast. Wow. Wow. But there is, but you can, you can use the podcast to get people to the point where they want to do that. Right. But then you're going to have to have some, like some local person who's doing it and say, Hey, will you take one person on and show them how to do what you do? Because like, you know, there are people that run little leagues that know how to do this stuff. There are, there are people running quilting circles that know how to do this stuff. Like right. a great community right. builder is not necessarily a great podcaster. Right. It's a it's a separate skill set. It's a separate skill set. But like we've got to become better at highlighting good communities 
and, and also at convincing older people that know something about relational ministry to share what they know with younger people. You know, I, I, I'm talking too much. No, you're not. no, no, I kind of am because I was like all excited <laughs> to get, I'm going to get to talk to Science Mike. And, 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 and people are like, you didn't actually talk, you talked at Science Mike. Oh, uh, well, and oh gosh, I am also, it's a huge problem for me in podcasting in that uh, I find the greatest value listening over yeah. speaking. So anytime we get someone on the liturgist or when I have people just in conversation, I tend to think, how much can I get out of this person's brain in the time that I have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but one thing I wanted to kind of circle back on, you talk about like, you know, uh, Rob's building a media thing. I, my work is media. Um, and I only say that that's not the only thing to do because I can't do that. Well, but I think one one thing I mean, that like makes that's, you it's just like... special. Uh, I think a lot of people who have done community building in a church context, the reason they aren't anymore is some degree of trauma. Yeah, I never got hurt, and so they don't want to. Could I start a local open community that like? Jesus is a myth and there's an empty tomb. People could all be in the same room and be comfortable. I absolutely could. Sure you could. Does the thought terrify me right. that I would turn around and traumatize someone the way that I was traumatized, that I would hurt someone means the podcast is a way for me to help people without feeling like I could actually hurt them. And I think that's very common I think you're right. in people who were in the, the institutional church and now aren't. The reason they go into this medium is I'll get into your life, but I won't get into your life so much that I'll let you down. And you can turn me off anytime you want. And you, you can want. turn me off anytime you want. Yeah. You know what? When I first came out of Christianity um, and was done, I instinctively knew that like people need community. I mean, I, that had been my whole life. And, and people, people need to feel like they're part of a narrative that's bigger than themselves. Mm. So I immediately went looking for like, what's my new narrative? Mm. You know, I, I remember reading this book, Neil Shubin's book, The Universe Within. And it's mm -hmm. kind of like a book-length treatment of how we are made of stardust. Yes. And thinking, yeah, this is part of it. And then I read Ursula... Goodenough's book, The Sacred Depths of Nature. Mm -hmm. And she and what I was looking for are people that could tell the epic of evolution in a way that was inspiring. And I instinctively, like, I knew that we needed a new narrative to be to be part of. But but I still, in terms of the lifestyle stuff was trying to figure out the one right way to be a secular humanist or the one right way to pursue goodness without God. Like, how does one build a good life? And I was looking for one, the scientifically evidence-based best way to live. Mm -hmm. And it took me years to realize that I had left Christianity, but I had carried with me the fundamental, the one, the looking for a one true way. 
the, 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 because that's the thing. Like when you get away from the God stuff, all of a sudden, it, it dawned on me, there are many ways mm-hmm. to live a good life. Mm-hmm. There are many ways, and 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 the way an autistic person is going to thrive, and the way a hyper extrovert is going to find a way thrive, and the way somebody who's, you know, got got a really high cognitive function and the way somebody who's not very, very bright, um, like there are a lot of different ways to thrive as a human being. Mm. When it comes to community building, I think a lot of times when the former pastor like is afraid of, of messing people up, he assumes that the community that he's going to start is gonna have to be selling the true way of secular life and he instinctively knows that like anytime you're selling like there's one way to live you're going to hurt people mm. Mm. and i think that the important thing is to, to recognize because because when you're in the southern baptist church you're like we need to get everybody else to believe what we believe we need to get everybody else everybody else is right or wrong to the de- to the degree to which they vary from our our one true path you could start a secular community almost like you start a rock and roll band and go like we're gonna play funk we're gonna play this this kind of like steamy punk funk music and if you like this music you should play you should join our band Mm. and if you like playing polka music it's great this isn't the band for you. Right, start a polka band. And just to be, to embrace the fact that like, we're not saying this is the way, we're saying this is our way. Hmm. And all of a sudden, a lot of that pressure of, well, what if we get in an argument over what kind of music, like, what if the group, you go like, oh, then you just like sort of say to the polka people, like you go over there, you know, like, what it, what, what, like it's not a big deal. You, like don't build a building. Hmm. Like don't print up a doctrinal statement like Mm. you're a band Mm. and the the pressure comes off a little bit because you're allowed to embrace the fact that this is and that this is about your own personal tastes and what you're really looking for Mm. is not to impose upon the world on like the new like the true path of life but you're simply trying to like pull together a tribe of people that thrive playing the same kind of music. Hmm. Does that make any sense? Uh, uh, it does because my approach to Christianity is not as a universal truth claim, but as a genre of spiritual practice. So if you like Christianity as a spiritual genre, I'd love to jam with you. If you don't, I'd love to hear about how you play. Yeah, I'm not worried. Yeah. Yeah, like it's just one way of like my, you know, the larger category is, are you pursuing the good life? Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, how are you doing that? Oh, how are mm-hmm. you doing that? And like, so when it comes to community building, it's okay to just say, I'm going to try to build a community for people that are in my genre. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For people who work like me, and we're going to sing the kind of songs that we. And you say, "Well, should a secular community sing?" And I go, "Like, well, if I'm in it, <laughs> not because I'm a good singer, but right. because I strongly value the emotional resonance that music brings to a group, and I've studied the science, and I think like synchronous movement is like like. But if that triggers you like crazy, 
freaks you out, it doesn't mean you're not a good humanist. Mm. It just means you, you probably shouldn't come to my Sunday night dinners because right. we're going to probably sing some songs. Right. Right. Hmm. But like, you, you know, I'm thinking about you and I'm thinking the reason people come out to, to see you is because you talk about life in a way that they resonate with. And you say, well, when I leave, but like, so then 500 people who come out to listen to you and you go like, why ha why, when I leave, why don't they just keep getting together? And the obvious answer is, because you're not there. Hmm. And you go like, well, that's almost to say it like, you can't have a community without a leader. Like, like, yeah. Like, I'm sorry all you people that got hurt by bad authoritarian spiritual leaders. Like, the alternative is not community with no leaders. <laughs> There's no such thing. The alternative to bad leadership is not no leadership. Mm. It's good leadership. It's accountable leadership. Here, here's one, you, Mr. Science Mike. Have you read anything by Karl Popper? Yes. Okay. I, I don't even know how to describe him. Like, is he a politi political theorist? Is he a philosophy of science? Like, I don't know what he is. Yeah, as, as, as most compelling thinkers are, he tends to bend genres quite a bit. But he shows up in like every good book you're reading. Yes. There's a Karl Popper reference. Right. So I read this thing about Karl Popper and he said, with respect to government, that the goal of, polit of political theory, like the best political system, was not the one that chose the best leaders. He said, most political theory is based on how do we get the correct representation? How do we choose the right leaders? He said, it's the wrong answer because you're picking human beings and no matter how right you are, you will always make mistakes. Mm. He said, the, the mark of a good political system is the one that most quickly and effectively gets rid of obviously bad leaders. Mm. He's like, no matter how good a picking system you have, you're gonna screw up. But the problem is like in America, you pick a bad leader and there's nothing you can do about it for four years. Right. And four years is a lot of time to do damage. So the question is, how do we come up with a system that ensures that if we make a horrible mistake, not that not that, that would ever happen in this country, <laughs> that we can quickly correct it. Right. Now, what I would say is, is that, that Karl Popper sort of saying like, listen, there's no, there's no getting around the fact that people screw up and that leadership corrupts people and that leadership is a dangerous thing. But he's like, it's, unavoidable you must have leadership mm. and so so I, I would say that when you're when you're forming a community it's probably like the, the idea that like well you know you shouldn't need a charismatic person who's really good at like sort of throwing a party to have a good party and i'd like but you do mm. have you ever seen any human endeavor that succeeded without leadership Show me a school, show me a, a university, show me a company, sh sh show me anything. I'm taking the question seriously. I, I'm yeah. honestly trying to think of a 
an exception. Yeah. <laughs> well, th- well, there was the uh, there was the um, Occupy movement. Oh wait, yeah, not a lot of staying power there. Yeah. Oh my. Hmm. I could just hear the uh, the brains popping in podcast land as we're talking. Well, I mean, because most of your people are in the space that they're in. At least many of them got driven out because they got they got hurt by a leader, they got failed by a leader, or you know, like 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 bad leadership is so rife, in, especially in the church. So, like, you got all these people that are Trump, Trump, tr- you know, post traumatic, yes, post leadership trauma, and somebody comes along and says, you know what? The only way you're really going to ever be able to thrive and find the kind of community that you're looking for is to re-embrace the idea of building communities around a certain kind of leadership. And I go like, I'm really sorry. It's so weird. I'm so sorry. Among my crew, the the post-church people don't want to do it because of fear and trauma. And then what I've actually noticed is some of the people who've never been in church who follow my work. Like, they're all in there. Like, I'd love to start something. What do I do? They don't because they because they they never <laughs> were like in the young the life group. Opposite. That's right. Inclination. That's exactly right. Because they have no problem. I had I was at an event and uh, someone walked up in a with a Nietzsche quote on the shirt. You know, um, what I think it was religion is the opiate of the masses. I, I didn't even know if that was Nietzsche. Um, it was Karl Marx. Karl Marx. Yeah. So yeah, Karl Marx shirt. Religious is the opiate of the masses. A lot of socialists in my audience. And he walks up, and he introduces an older woman who turns out to be his mother. And he introduces me as his pastor, right? So he's a, an atheist. Um, this yeah. was in Seattle. Family's never been in church. Introduces me as the pastor. And as he was talking, he said, you know, how do I do what you do? I was like, well, you just get a microphone. And, no, 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 no. Like, in this room. That's right. And he was really interested, but uh, my public speaking ability, as I got into my professional career, I started looking at people like Steve Jobs and really great secular communicators, but my communication skills come from watching a pulpit every Sunday it's, it, for it, my entire childhood yeah. and, and, and learning as much from terrible preachers as great ones. You know what I mean? The, person, the people I would, as I got you know eight or nine years old, when a pastor bored me, those were the ones I really paid attention to. Why is this boring? What cues are they missing in the room? What about, why was this interesting for 12 minutes, but now at minute 15 is not? What happened? Where did they lose it? And I studied it. Yeah. When I used to give, give talks, I would give a talk, and I would leave the crowd in a certain place. And depending on how the organizers of the event, what music they put on after me, or whether they came up and gave announcements or whatever, mm-hmm. they could wreck Right. What I had done. Right. Or they could take advantage of it and pivot it into a, into an incredible thing. And you realize like, oh, it's not like the talking is just a piece of it. It's just a piece. Yeah. You know, it's just a piece of it. And so, yeah, when that guy comes up to you and says, I want to do what you do, what he's really asking is, how do you create a safe space hmm. where people can open up to each other and, and form connections. You know, people say to me, why, why do you always have dinner when you're gathering a group of people? I go like, oh, I, I, from, I have a lot of data that suggests that when people eat together, 
it frees up certain parts of their brain that make them more able to connect with each other and stuff like that. I also like grew up in church mm-hmm. and saw it happen week after, covered his suppers. We saw it happen week after week, you, you know? And so you just go like, okay, that's where I say to the, like the, the problem is, is that some of the, the people that have come out of the church, they're so angry because the narrative that they were given, like literally, like they've had the wool pulled over. I mean, I know so many people that are saying, I, I felt guilty for masturbating every time I masturbated until I was 30 years old. Mm. Like I'm pissed. Right. Like, like they took right. away the joy of sexuality. I was a young person. My body was emerging. Nature was doing its thing with me and I missed it all. Right. Like they're angry. Yeah. Or like I feared dying and burning in hell. You know, like the pain that people go through. And so when they get out of that, when they get out of that, they want to walk away from the covered suppers, from the missions trips, from the music. They're like, it's all tainted. It's mm-hmm. all associated with this narrative that says you're a piece of shit and you're going to burn in hell forever um, unless you like accept the grace of God. Right. And so, but like you yourself have no intrinsic value, just in case you're wondering. Like that narrative is so painful that when you come out of it, you want nothing associated with it. But the truth of the matter is, is that the church didn't doesn't hold together on the strength of that narrative. It holds together in spite of the violence of that right. narrative because of the music mm-hmm. and the missions trips and the coveredish suppers and the pastoral caregiving and knowing who should and shouldn't be allowed to run the kitchen and, you know, all of those things. And so, you know, we throw that stuff out the window at our, at our peril. Mm. Mm. Man, do I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> so I totally, so agree. what I'm trying to figure is like, if I had, you know, like, like I'm finding myself going, like if I had a huge podcast audience and you know, what would I do? And, 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 and in a sense, I think I would have conversations where we would get down to some, some of the nitty gritty and go like, hey, will you let, let's tell some stories about like the best group meals we ever went to and like what made them work. Mm. Like, cause like I've been to really good dinner parties and I've been to really bad ones. Like what made them work? Mm. And like actually talk about the nuts and bolts of putting together a dinner party where people end up leaving feeling closer to each other. Hmm. Like, you like, there are skills that we could talk about, but in the end, it would be like talking about shifting a car. That it's good to talk about if you've ever been in a car. Like, you and I could talk about shifting a car, and we talk about, like, you know, how, it, because we've done it. Right. But the only way we're ever going to really raise up a generation of people that know how to put together a really good book group or a really good weekly dinner party or a really good secular community are going to be if we can get the people that are doing it to show some people how it's done. Hmm. Hmm. And that's, that's, you know, that's kind of, and that, and again, that's why I'm like, Brian, McLaren, <laughs> wherever you are, come help. Like, because he knows how to do it. But most of the people that he goes and speaks to, they also know how to do it. They right. all grew up in that culture. Right. And out here among like the guy who came up to you in Seattle, he needs Brian McLaren. Hmm. I th- so I think there could be almost a two-pronged strategy. 
using my audience as a, a point of reference. One strategy is to create local communities to help people understand how that's done. Uh, so part of that will involve people who've left the institutional church dealing with their own shit. <laughs> Wait, and you, you know what? Stop. Yeah. Because that's where you're doing an incredible service. Because you're helping people process their PTSD and you're giving them some new language. And maybe if you keep working with them, like, you know, uh, mm -hmm. as if you're a therapist, but like maybe if you keep doing that, some of them will get to the place where they're like, okay, I'm ready to try again. And they've already got the skill set, but they mm -hmm. haven't been wanting to do it because they're, they were traumatized. And like you're helping them work through the trauma. So like it may be that there's a whole bunch of people in your audience that when you're done with them, will be like, okay, hmm. I'm tired of being alone. Every, and, and, and they'll look around and go, there's a lot of people tired of being alone. That a lot of people that want a party but I actually know how to throw a party. Right. So I'm going to I'm going I'm going to get back in the game. Yeah. So there's that and th obviously that's important to me. <laughs> but another thing that I'm a part of um that I think a, a lot of people would write off as impossible but is kicking the violence out of the institutions. Um out of which institutions? The the church. The church proper. So part of the reason I'm still on the inside of the church oh, gosh. is... Um, you and everybody. <laughs> you and everybody are trying to fix the church. Well, it's not... I don't... The problem is there's just a lot of stuff there that's useful, right? Right. So just listen. If you... Here's the thing. If you've got a really violent submarine and you want to build a really good submarine, just study that submarine and then go start from scratch. Like, don't, like, just start from scratch. One of the most exciting things I've ever seen was at the Armstrong Flight Research Center, at NASA's flight center. They had an SR-71 Blackbird. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've seen sitting that plane. On the right, right. Which they had repurposed as a scientific instrument. Oh, so they were actually flying it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But they took all the weapons off and they put scientific instruments and they were able to do science with that death machine that they could not have otherwise Swords into done. plowshares. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, and same thing, they had F-16s completely repurposed as research aircraft. Yeah. yeah. Can I just say so, something? Like the church is not a blackbird. <laughs> okay. It just isn't. Because one of the things that the, the, the essence of the church narrative is this exclusivist thing. Like, like, there's an exclusivity to that narrative that the only people, that, the only Christians that you're going to really get to, to build this wonderful kind of thing, the nonviolent church, are ones that essentially aren't Christians anymore. Or, or they're not evangelicals anymore. Yeah. They're done with it. They're done with the exclusive narrative. They're, they, they've, they've embraced the idea that, that Christianity is a expression yes of the will to goodness yes um rather than which is relatively common in the mainline church right which well, is where i mostly part and, of it. Yeah, yeah right and, and like yeah those those lovely methodists that, yes. that you were with and stuff like that and so i go like there are so many people working like like those guys the methodist church 
is that a violent church still parts of it are sir parts of it are yeah to the degree that they are still evangelical yeah right there's an evangelical wing of the methodist right. church there's an evangelical wing of everything yeah um an exclusivist wing mm. a we're the right we're right and everyone else is wrong wing like there was this church i went to in seattle that's methodist and they've converted the the churches literally functioning seven days a week and it is a free needle replacement yeah, they're all center. These, I, it's like you know what i mean like yeah, that's sure and, and 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 the thing is like and probably if you went into the heart of those people's theology they've super open yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so 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 i'm just saying i'm interested in that work as well i know everybody's interested in that work and i can't <laughs> figure it out it's like everybody's interested in that work, and I'm like, that work's going on, and there's plenty of people to do it. Huh. And over here, there's nobody. I see. I guess from your perspective, there's plenty of people doing it. The people in that space look at evangelical megachurches and go, you know, there's every position is relative, I suppose. I guess. I just... All my life, I've been hearing people tell me how they want to fix the church and they want to make the church more of this and they want to make the church more of that. And so often, their best energies get consumed by mm. the politics of trying to reform things. And you know, if there's anything that I think I've learned from my business friends is sometimes it's easier to start a new company Certainly. than it is to, to try to change the culture of an old company and so i'm like listen if you no longer believe in that narrative even then just start a new company i mean i could understand it if you're like that's the narrative or you're like we've got to be methodist but like you don't you're not you're not married to that that narrative so just start a community in around your values mm. just start a community say like this is what we're this is what we're going to pursue and you say well, what are we going to say about god you say we're not going to say anything about god that's not, this is not a narrative, that, that's not part of the narrative here. Hmm. We're pursuing goodness for these reasons. You don't have to be anti-God. Just, I, I don't know, I, like maybe I've, I've just, I meet so many lonely people. Hmm. I meet so many people looking for something. And if it says Methodist, they will walk the other way. Sure. And if it says Buddhist or Muslim, they will walk the other way. And like there's an increase, even if they were raised Buddhist, right. even if they were raised Methodist, they will even more walk the other way. So I'm like, listen, just couldn't we just start something that they won't walk away from? Mm. Mm. And I, I, so, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I just, I feel lonely sometimes mm. because I think, Here's something I want to talk to you about. Because uh, you probably read that Dostoevsky book, The Brothers Karamazov. Mm -mm. No? Have you ever heard of it, though? Like, mm -mm. I don't think so. Dostoevsky was this Russian novelist. And he wrote I this know that. famous book called The Brothers Karamazov. And the kind of the key uh, encounter in it is between Ayasha, their brothers, uh, who's the, a devout Christian and a wonderful person, and his brother Ivan, who is a devout secularist, and also a lovely person mm. in his own way, but harder and more cynical. Um, and uh, eventually, Yvonne tells Ayasha the story of the myth of the Grand Inquisitor, which is actually a fairly famous... Your wife would know this. Yes. Jenny would know this. Okay. Um, 
and there was a really good I was going somewhere with this oh yeah 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 but anyway what happens is is that Jesus comes back to earth and the head of the Catholic Church like and he's doing miracles and stuff he's starting to get a name for himself and the, and, and the head of the Catholic Church has him arrested and he goes to interview him and he says listen what have you why are you come back here it's, it took us it took us 2,000 years to undo the damage you did mm. you're trying to offer people freedom said so most people can't handle freedom they need somebody they want bread like they want they, they want they want they want order mm. and we tell them what to do mm. like you know and he says something really interesting he says freedom only works for a very small number of people and he sort of like draws a line and says there's 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 human beings that function at one level and they can handle certain truths and they can handle certain stuff and then there are human beings at a different level of sort of education or or, or, or awareness or competence or whatever you want to call it. And when I get in these conversations with like the social justice warrior type people, it's like every system they have presupposes that everybody can do everything or can handle everything. And my question is like, do you think, do you think there's kind of like one religion for really smart people and one religion for people that aren't so smart? Hmm. Do you think that like, Sometimes as a so, in, in sort of social engineering, you sort of go like, the masses need this, but the, the, the elite won't be able to handle it or won't buy that. So you have to, you have to come up with an elite version and, and you have to admit the fact that like you have different stratas of society. Because like I know it's completely politically incorrect to even use the word elite. Yeah. I, I think... But do, do you, don't you think there is a natural elite? When I studied uh, the rise of... Sufi mysticism and Islam. I was so compelled by its theology, but so turned off by its elitism or exclusivity as it played out in history. And right. basically, like, some people can handle this mysticism, but most people can't. And, um, yeah, what do you think of that? I think that, um, is born out of impatience to be involved in other people's lives. If I if we were to talk about relativity, Einstein's theory of relativity, if you were to stand up and explain it mathematically in front of a room of 100 people, very few people would understand it immediately. That would require a certain background in education. But given sufficient instruction and investment an overwhelming number of people in the room could understand relativity there's nothing like <laughs> that's 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 great that's sort of saying like given enough like anybody can dunk a basketball <laughs> given enough leg strength and coordination and motivation and training you're like yeah like but i guess that's my precisely point is, what everybody doesn't have yeah but i i Given I'm, sufficient... just a, I'm a ra radical egalitarian, and I think if... Um... Why? Why? There's no evidence for it. I thought you were scientific. There's no <laughs> evidence for egalitarianism. There's... Well, uh, I would say the... This will get into more political theory, but the reason is not intrinsic ability, but social investment that's such bullshit you you even know that's bullshit when you say it like think about it <laughs> think about it 
Like, you have like a hunter-gatherer tribe out there. Yes. Is it egalitarian? Uh, or is somebody a better hunter? Is somebody stronger? There would be better and less better hunters, sure. Yeah, of course. Like, But the, the degree of disparity between the best and worst hunter would not reflect the disparity in resources between the richest and poorest person in modern society or anything close to it. Give it time. Give it time. That's the whole point. Give it time. Guns, germs, and steel. Are you, do you, have you ever, are you familiar with Jared Diamond and guns, germs, and steel? Uh, yes. Right. So like, you go like, what happens when one culture gets a little leg up? Uh, the reason I looked at you funny is I thought you said gun, German, steel. No, and no. I was like, no, I'm no, not. No. Gun, <laughs> right. Guns, germs, and steel. I don't enunciate very well. But the theory is, is that once a group gets a leg up, it only, it, the disparity only grows. Yes. Because it exploits its advantage, and then it has a bigger advantage, and you go like, well, wait a second. So achievement rates among children in America, uh, nutrition plays a, a much larger role than heredity, for example. Yeah, I mean, look, you just moved to Southern California. Have you noticed that everybody here is better looking? Why do you think I that? Suppose. You say, but it costs a lot more to live here. You're like, wait a second. It's not like really rich people, really smart, like good-looking people have an have an have an economic advantage. Oh yes, they do. And that once they gain an economic advantage, they're richer than other people. Then they can marry other good-looking people, and and then they can send their kids to better schools, and then they can have better nutrition. Yes. And like their advantage just grows and grows and grows, and then go to North Philadelphia, where I spent a lot of my life working, and like watch it work the other way. Systemic amplification. Yes. Yeah. So it's like you know that when when there's the initial disparity that you find in the hunter gatherer tribe, mm -hmm. it will only as the technology increases, as the economic power, as 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 the human capacity increases, that disparity will not shrink. It will only grow. So at some point you're gonna have people that's disparity is so far apart that they're effectively two different kinds of people. And the question is, religiously, when it comes to trying to create meaning and purpose and trying to organize a society, does there come a point when it comes to like with this God stuff, for instance, like I'm starting, you know, people say to me like, you'll never eradicate God. And I go like, of course not. I'm not even trying to. Like, I think God is the best narrative going for people when there's a maybe not very much money and not very much education and like, you know, like that's going to you, you say, well, you, come on, you're not acting as though belief in a personal God is always greater in places of low education and economic deprivation. Like, like oh, of course it is. And so, and so like, I'm not trying to fight that. And I'm not trying to say it's a bad, I'm just saying like, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling because I'm, an egalitarian in my heart, hmm. but I'm a science guy, and there's no science to support the idea of egalitarianism. And you're a science guy, and so I'm trying. Like I hear, I, like I hear you talk egalitarian, and I go like, where did that come from? I guess I would I would wrestle I'm with the you to notion help me. I'm that to yeah me. I'm a I'm a slow 
slower, slower thinker. No, no, I just mean I, I, I um, just want you, I'm not attacking or like I'm, I'm not I'm not challenging because I I think you don't have an answer. I really need help here. I think that science illustrates the fundamental. immorality of the way we structure society um we we we're creating if if we go to this two different types of people metaphor um it's a social construct it's it no it's not it's a it's a a social construct creating huge life consequences for people but it's 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 not a social construct. It's a natural phenomenon. It happens with lobsters. It happens. No, I agree. It happens everywhere. Totally agree. But as you said earlier, Stephen Pinker says we are getting less violent, and that's good. Intentionally creating more equal society is also good. Intrinsically. But Steven Pinker would say we are creating, a, we are a less violent. Yes. He would not say we are a less equal. No, more, we are getting more, more unequal. Yeah. And, right. are, and that, what if there's a direct relationship between those two things? It's a fascinating premise. So put my cards on the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. All beliefs are survival adaptations. All human beliefs are just survival adaptations. I'm an epistemological nihilist, so I tend to put ideas on and off relatively easily because they're just my brain trying to survive. That's all a belief is, is a brain trying to... to, No human belief describes reality with absolute fidelity. They're all metaphors that point to something in the physical world that help us navigate and survive. I agree with that absolutely and completely. So, So, which is why... And I also want to say that again for the listeners, because right now the social justice wing of the Science Mike audience, they've got the pitchforks out. They've got the, the, the match to light the torch, and they're coming. Oh, for me? So, yeah. So, oh, uh, yeah, and, yeah. And like, and I'm with so, them. I'm right. with them wanting so, to come and get me. I would say um, the idea of who contributes more and who contributes less exists within a set of social constructs. Right, because what in terms of what actually contributes to our survival, food, shelter, safety, security, right? Uh, in terms of contribution, I don't contribute very much to the world, although I would be more on the elite side of the spectrum. I grew up comfortably middle class, have a great set of communication skills. Uh, I can write books. I can extract a lot of value from the economy that is utterly unrelated to people's basic necessities. Right, but you you are you are adapted to the present situation. Totally. If that situation changes, I would. Ad- you could be an evolutionary casualty. Absolutely. I'm pro- and I and I I believe quite strongly if this exact set of genetic material would have appeared on planet Earth in 1450. Huge problem. Your DNA might not have made it through. Right. And if, if you would have gone back uh, pre-civ, hunter-gatherer, oh boy, am I a, a drain on the tribe, right? So that's that's part of what evolution does. 
thank you evolution for keeping the species alive. Uh, my point is at the level of raw economic output we're capable of now, the raw amount of food, the raw amount of shelter we can create, um, the reason I support egalitarianism as a philosophy and as a, as a, as a basis for moral decisions is because we've grown to have the capacity to produce more egalitarian outcomes in a in a in a in a 25 person homo sapien troop pre-civilization pre-language if somebody breaks their ankle you're done we have no capacity to sustain your life through the recovery of that broken ankle we are barely able to consistently eat and produce offspring so i'm sorry broken leg guy you can't walk Fall with behind, us. left behind. We're going we're gonna to do a ritual right now to talk about your transition to the spirit world to make us feel better, and then we're going to keep walking. But at some point, we had enough output to say, you know what, you can lie down for a while, and you can mend your leg, and then you can reintegrate in with society. Well, at the point we're at now, we have the raw capacity, and thank goodness, that people with severe physical and emotional uh, and mental disabilities, their needs can be met. And but what happens when what happens in a competitive situation? Like what, if resources become scarce, yes. water, for instance, sure, become scarce on the horizon, right? And a tribe emerges, a group of people emerge, emerge that say, we don't waste any of our resources keeping the bottom 5% alive. We don't waste water on those people. Mm. We give them to our soldiers. We give them to our scientists. We give them to our, we give them to our, our, our producers. And that society comes into competition for resources with a society that's egalitarian in nature, that shares equally. Theoretically, speculatively, yeah. you would say that the, the society that's less egalitarian is going to have a competitive advantage. Maybe. Evolution has favored altruism for some reason. So we have this balance in the species yes, yes. between altruism and viciousness, competition and, and cooperation, and, and it's a right. And we're all we have a different sort of genetic tendency towards that balance, and then we have a different enculturated and environmental reinforcement. Well, and this is and I don't ex- know if this we can my say scientifically, as, objectively, which is better. I don't know. They are more or less timely. See, at I'm different struggling points. with this because, like, as a community builder, yes, the Down syndrome, the kid with Down syndrome who's a part of the community, draws out of the whole community. Yes. A, a, a kind of a collective, collective love and, and, and cohesion and somebody who's, who's not particularly comfortable in the group becomes comfortable sitting next to this kid because he just loves everybody equally mm-hmm. and, and, and all this beautiful. And you sort of go like, wait a second, maybe this tribe is stronger by right. sharing some of its water with that kid. I mean, that's a, that's a hopeful thought, isn't it? Yes. Um, that would be my position, and this is, this is where I go from being a proper science person to a mystic. 
if being a water sharer means my tribe will lose to the tribe that does not, then I will happily be selected against. Until they come for your daughter. Maybe. Maybe that would bring out the... Uh, the brew, but I, I'm a no, there's no maybe about it. I mean, you know, like there's no maybe about it. Like that is how we are wired. Yeah. When they come for your DNA, you're going to be shocked at how quickly you, you know, you, you're willing to sacrifice some like, I, I mean, I, your kids are sweet. I'm sure. Yeah. But like if, it's, if there's a sandwich and my kids, it's my kid versus your kid. Believe me, I'm not sharing that sandwich. If, if my kid's life depends upon it. That's why I've always said if, if, you know, the, the, it comes out on the news that uh, North Korea's got a warhead in the air headed for L.A. I load the family up in the car with sandwiches and we drive downtown. <laughs> we don't drive towards the desert to try to survive in the aftermath. Right, you don't want to be there. We, we, we eat a pizza. Yeah. We have, we okay. Yeah, I was, I, was, I, was, I was like, I was like, wait, wait, what's the survival strategy? Oh, yeah, no, it's no not. Survival. It's like, nope, right. no interest in that, that. What I'm struggling with is I am aware of what, 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 what jumped us off on this was for me the spirituality thing because I think, like, when I was at USC, among the kind of the intellectual elite. These were people that they weren't interested in and they didn't want the mythological overlay on reality. Hmm. So yeah, I guess what I'd say is for whatever. And I was like, of course they don't. Like, they, they, like, like but, 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 but then they would say, like, we need to eradicate this for everyone. And I'm like, listen, you don't know everyone. Right. There's people at a different, in a different milieu and they're struggling with different demons and like this god thing this god word this god language like like even if you dial down the supernatural content of it like that's it's good for them right and, and sometimes people say you're very in a sense like they sort of go like that's very patronizing for you to go to like, yes i've heard that line of thought right. i disagree I, I i don't think it's simply a matter of economic elitism I think there's many life circumstances upon which people need the idea of God or even a personal God. I, I know very educated people, very wealthy people, um, working scientists who do serious research who believe in God. In a personal way. In a personal way. Yeah. Uh, and there's a million reasons why. It, Oxford told us. They did, they, you know, they did a, a, a decadal study. They came up with three reasons that people believe in God. Uh, one is babies tend to believe that uh, their moms are all-knowing. At some point, they learn moms not all-knowing. But if in that transition state, you introduce the idea of an, an entity that's all-knowing, the brain very naturally accepts it, right? That's one. Um, two is we overwhelmingly accept purpose-based explanations for observed phenomenon as humans, including trained scientists. So you can take a scientist trained in evolutionary biology, and if you drown them with enough questions over and over unrelated to their work... They're looking and for get, purpose. Right. Why are polar bears white? If you give them a purpose-based explanation and then a proper evolutionary explanation, they're going to pick the purpose-based one. And then third is... Um, 
Homo sapiens have a hard time imagining the cessation of their consciousness. So even in secular societies, a majority of people believe in an afterlife of some kind. So when you take those three ingredients... Do you have a hard time? Not anymore. No. But for most of my life, sure. Right, right. But my point is, if you take a Nobel Prize winning scientist who struggles with the idea of their consciousness ending sufficiently... But they don't. Occasionally they do. It's a much smaller percentage. Don't get me wrong. But 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 and if, and if they and if and if they do like 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 first of all if a Nobel Peace Prize winning scientist believes in a personal god I'm going to bet you it's not because of that one it's because of the one of the first two uh-huh right but i mean whatever whatever of those whatever of those recipes in a person's life means they need a personal god i'm have no interest in debasing people Neither about, do I. but i also i don't necessarily associate that with cleanly with socioeconomic position or education or education now although it is clean they're correlated um but it's a it's a spectrum at where there isn't just because you're poor and of low means doesn't guarantee belief and just because you're educated enough means doesn't guarantee disbelief it's no, it still depends on who your mom probability it still depends on who your mom was and you're alive yeah but you you all we are also seeing uh, children who are raised in secular environments are 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 more prone to be won over by fundamentalist religion than people who are raised in moderate religious circumstances. So sure, you're inoculated so much, you right? Get exactly. To the so that, this is what I'm saying. Like this, it's a, it's a very complex as anything involving this damn species. It's an incredibly complex set of underlying psychological mechanisms that then manifest themselves as either, you know, a sacred or secular bent. And I guess that's where I am. I mainly view my life and the life of my species through the lens of neurology and primatology. So I, I don't think anyone, no matter how educated they are, are functioning out of some objective... Um, high precision lens of reality that's everyone, not how we make our decisions everyone's functioning right. in social identity and belonging yeah, and yeah. emotional needs yeah that's like franz de wall stuff but like also like that's jonathan height and right yes. like like look <laughs> oh yeah okay right yeah you're just down here like you think you're you're, you're you, we are rationalizing creatures right not rational creatures yes. we make our decisions for all these gut level evolutionary reasons and then we come up with arguments to support them and you know, one of the biggest gut level ones is this belonging thing and so if mm -hmm. everybody around you is believing in a story mm -hmm. it is it is rational to mm -hmm. believe in that story it is that is the, that is your best move that is your evolutionary self saying i want to stay alive mm -hmm. get my dna through right right stay with the tribe right stay with the group I know that was a terrible tangent <laughs> and, and, it was fine. and it was not based upon me trying to do anything except I'm, I'm, I'm so, have you ever been testing ideas takes you what, to strange what, places? But, yeah. But the other thing is like when you're, when you're attracted to an idea mm. that you don't want to be attracted to, that was, that was our yes. story with, with atheism. Absolutely. Like, you know, you go like, 
wait a second, that seems to make a lot of sense. I don't want to go there. Like, I'm going to lose my job. You're going to lose your marriage. Like, yes. like, like all yes. these, like, it's terrifying. But you're like, and for me, this, this, um, this dominance hierarchies are inescapable idea that has been planted out there now hmm. um, is one of those ideas that I go like, I don't want that to be right. Right. But I suspect it may be right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to find a way around it. Yes. So my hope is dominance hierarchies are inescapable is uh, a human can't run faster than a six minute mile. Like on the surface with, with a lot of data we look, it looks very strongly supported until someone runs a five minute and 59 second mile. And my, yeah. And, and my suspicion is, is that because this has been my experience as somebody who is part of the, you know, more, more privileged sect mm -hmm. is that I have the suspicion that like in some prime primate groups, a person will amass a bunch of status and stuff and then they will share it because by sharing it, they will win a bunch of friends for themselves. And that actually is a better evolutionary strategy for them than consolidating power and consolidating wealth. Mm -hmm. And like, I suspect that the people that are amassing, like the, the, the elite that are amassing all this thing, that they are over, that they are overreaching. My that, life proves they are. I, there's a movie you may have heard of called It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? George Bailey right, right. makes it because the weakest dump out pennies on the table. That's how I eat every month. Right. It, it, there's no huge elite institutions with incredible capital sustaining my work. No, no. A bunch of millennials with student loans send me a dollar a month. Yeah. And Jonathan Haidt, you know, he, he was talking about some research uh, that basically if you look at uh, brain size in primates, how it predicts the size of social groupings, and the larger the brain, the larger the social grouping, the more time each day a primate spends physically grooming other primates to maintain the social connections that keeps them alive until you get to Homo sapiens who spend almost no time physically grooming each other. But the grooming mechanism is language, right? So there are far more outwardly dominant people in society than me um, and who amass more power and amass more personal resources, but I am a case that shows altruism and copious grooming of other primates through language is its own form <laughs> I hadn't thought of subversive about what, power. I hadn't thought about what you're doing as copious grooming, but that's I like that. That's totally how I think. No, that's just, what it is. That's good. That's good. Uh, right now, like a couple hundred thousand people are getting their little mites no, picked by no, me. No, no, I hear you. I hear you. And, and because of that, when someone who on paper in a, in a classical survival of the fittest evolutionary model, which of course is not what evolution is, who's bigger, stronger, meaner, more dominant, wants to come after me, they have a huge problem. A few hundred thousand other primates say, no, no, that guy groomed me. Yeah, he matters. He matters, right? So I don't worry about someone. Right, but you see, uh, okay, so. And that sa the yeah. same thing. So, you, uh, but again, you, like, it's a different. What, Language what, is the selection yeah, what we're, and what, But what we're really talking about here is not the 
is not escaping a dominance hierarchy. It's simply your dominance expressing itself in a different way. Yes. Okay. And, and I guess that's what I'm, I'm thinking is, is that my way around Jordan Peterson may well be to say that there is always going to be people that can contribute more and contribute less. And that if you are one of the elite, the, the reason to, to like egalitarian, like that in a sense, what I want you to do is I want you to express your power mm-hmm. in a socially responsible way where people say, and, and, and certain, that in a sense, like that, that the amount that you give away is your way of showing how strong you are. I can mm-hmm. afford, look at, not look at how much I, look at, look at this car I have. Like that's one way of expressing how economically powerful you are. The other way is to go like, look at how many people I can feed. Mm-hmm. Look at how many people I can love. Mm-hmm. Look at, look at, look at how, and so in a sense, like there would still be the admission that there's, t- in a sense, and there might even be two kinds of messages that we send to us people in a society if it's funny i wrote this i'll I'll share this with you after afterwards i wrote this lent this christian ministry asked me to write a lenten devotion entry did you see it Mm -hmm. it's it's and what i was trying to do is say like there'll be a moment when you have a lot and this is what you should do Mm -hmm. and think and there's a moment when you don't have anything and this is what you should think. And there are two different messages. Mm-hmm. There's not an egalitarian message that says everybody should give or everybody should. And I think that that may be, a, that may be the ultimate reality is that what we have to accept is there are always going to be dominant creatures and that civilization is about expressing your dominance in service. Kindness and altruism are the most self-serving thing I can do. Yeah. Yeah, I've always thought that too. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, my my grandmother, my dad's mom, her her her, her line was she would say, Anthony, Anthony, if you have to choose between having a million dollars and a million friends, <laughs> take the friends. Yes, they each should be good for a dollar a piece. Yes, which is like your podcast. That's totally my life. Yeah. Well, it is also if we look at the circumstances right now with Black Lives Matter and Me Too. And people who have been traditionally held down saying no more. The people who are trying to run it the old way, well, the revolution, if they're against the wall, that's going to be a big problem. Whereas if you say, you know what? No, I'm in. Let's do this. I'm with you. It ends up for a better outcome for you. I think that's true. I, I, I will say this. From having spent life on the street is that I think it's true to a point. Hmm. And then there comes a point where the leader who's expressing his power in service gathers together the people and there's still an admission that there's a group of people, Marx would call them, the, not the proletariat, the lumpen proletariat, the, pro, the people below, and that the tribe sort of looks at them and says, you know what? your ankles are all broken and your arms are broken and you don't even like anybody and you don't even want to help and we are going to actually have to walk on without you. Mm-hmm. And and so that's where I've lost my Christian miraculous thinking that says mm-hmm. that 
everybody can be fixed and everybody can be part of it. Like that, that, that's, that's supernaturalism. You see the, uh, activating tear ducts. Yeah. That's why I am a Christian. That's why I use the word. That's it. Because you want to hold on to that. There is, there is nobody unworthy. Yeah. Yep. That's it. That's the only core thing that makes me a Christian and not a Christian. Because the, you know that if you just go with the data, you can still get to love. Yep. You can still get to, you can even get to, as we've just done, you can get to a certain level of social harmony, but you can't save the psychopath. Mm-mm. Yeah. And I'm too old and too tired. And I spent too much of my life actually looking the psychopath in the eye. And I know that there are people you can't save. And I spent my childhood being told I was... One of them. One of them. Really? Mm-hmm. I was a bully kid. And I was uh, learning disabled. And both my peers and the institution said, you don't have worth and you can't contribute and you're not welcome here. I, I'm not a Christian. Hmm. You know, like, like for, very, for, for many reasons. But even when we break Christianity down to like, just the line that you that you said i'm still not a christian mm. yeah yeah that's fair and 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 and, and if, if i was you know like I, a tear could run down my eyes saying that because i go like that's a hard thing to give up is that purity mm. Mm. um but that's that's kind of what losing my faith in supernaturalism Another way of describing that is losing my faith in purity. Well, a it's been a long time since anyone could use the word purity in the same sentence as me. So I'm chalking this whole discussion up as a huge win. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a huge yeah. Hats there, off. there you go. <laughs> Science Mike, his, his his ideals are very pure. Yes. Yeah, I don't know if this like yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, but you are, you you know, compared to me, you're a purist. Yeah. I'm, uh, yes, I have a strange, I'm pragmatic to, until to you hit one of my remaining ideologies. And then I'm always like, oh my God, I have, an, I have an ideology. Yeah. And I'm always real surprised by them. But they're there. Yeah. They're there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's funny. Because like on some level, somebody because they were, were way up in the air here, but like I've got a specific kid in mind. I've got a guy in my old neighborhood named Piedmont in mind. Mm-hmm. Like I'm thinking of people and going like, if if you reduce the world down to a lifeboat, what do I do with P? What do I what do I do with this little girl? Well, I guess that's you know. What do I do with these people? If, if I'm in charge. That's the short-sightedness of the species. We should be taking a lot better care of the lifeboat. You see what I mean? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like we're talking about like what's going to happen when the water runs out. There's no intrinsic thing that's making the fresh water run out other than the way we're functioning our yeah, societies I mean, and economies. But like, do, do, do you think this, like, I, I guess the thing is like, you think the universe is, is has an intrinsic purpose? Oh, I wouldn't say no, that. No, no, no. See, cause to me, like, life uh, it, life emerges. It has an intrinsic tendency towards 
disorder. <laughs> right, right, right. But I would say like out of the chaos of the universe, like life emerges, like mm-hmm. accident. And then, you know, like, like it's funny when I listened to your sort of testimony like video, I was like, I was with you until the last five minutes. And the point at which oh, you go tail. like, then there's no meaning except that which we create. And I'm like, yeah, you're part of the universe. You're the part, like meaning emerges mm-hmm. with sentient beings. Like there wasn't, the universe had no meaning at all. And then it did. Mm. And there's a very real chance that the universe will return to having no meaning. Oh, yes. And then it may... Re- I wouldn't bet against it. And then actually. it may reemerge again. Yeah. But like, I think that, I think that meaning is, is the... We're the part of the universe that infects the whole thing with meaning. Mm. You know, we're the drop... We're the drop of urine in the in the in the pure swimming pool. Yeah, we're the drop of meaning in the in the purely meaningless universe that make the whole thing because it's all related, it's all connected. So there's meaning in the universe as long as as long as somebody's thinking, mm. as long as somebody's feeling, as long mm. as somebody's relating. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think we make it. It you know, and so and so my sense of meaning like. And even to the degree that there's meaning in the universe now, I'm meaningful to you. You're like we're meaningful to each other. Yes. Like, all meaning is relative. All meaning is re- like is relative or subjective or, or connected to pe- to persons or, or to 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 things. And so, to persons, I don't mm-hmm. mean to things. Mm-hmm. Like, um. And and so my friend, um. I have a friend who says that the problem is is that the only way humanity even makes it very much farther is if it re-enters into an I-thou relationship with the universe that science has given us, has, has, has caused us to start to relate to the universe as a thing. Mm-hmm. And that the, the, the real wisdom of the mythologies wasn't that they actually described the physical universe, but that they were clear, clear and cogent reminders, treat the lifeboat, like a girl mm. or like, you know, like, like, right. You know, like, like, like call it her, mm-hmm. you know, call the universe him, mm-hmm. but like personify it. Not because it's actually a person, but because unless you treat it as a person, you won't be here very long. Right. Which is an interesting. We have strange brains. Yeah. <laughs> Got a model of one over there. Yeah. yeah. To be constantly reminded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, and and so I, which which is why I elect to personify the cosmos using the word God, a volitional election. Yeah, as to remind you of something that's important to trick my brain into behaving differently. Right, like our our language shapes our. our oh, yeah, if you call your car. Glynis, yeah, exactly. you'll treat it differently. I don't literally think my car is Glynis, but if I call my car Glynis, then I'll treat my car differently. Um, and so that's the, my, my using the word God isn't some theological claim. No, no. It's a matter of brain tuning. That's it. And it's, it's you know, there's a book there that's uh, The Master and His Emissary, which I don't know if you've ever read, but it talks about how the Enlightenment shifts it overall balance of human brain activity towards the left hemisphere um, and that there are viable 
survival needs that are met by the holism of the right brain that right now spirituality addresses better than other types of of cognition or human thought and so my embrace of the numinous and of mysticism is an empirical practice of trying to re-bias my brain to use that right hemisphere more often um then why i mean I, i hear you yeah but then I, I think of you talking to that church crowd on that video. Mm-hmm. And when you tell the story of like standing at the beach and the water washing, like. Which is a true story that I experienced. That. I believe you. Yeah. And, I, and I'm like, oh, he had an experience where the universe felt like a person. Yes. Right. But when you tell it to them and they're clapping, I feel like I know how they're hearing that story. Hmm. And they're not hearing it. Like we're talking it now. Hmm. And that, you know, like, and maybe that's the reason I don't I mean, get, maybe that's the reason maybe I, I feel on like, that same stage in a mega church, I said, I don't know if there's an afterlife. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I don't hide where I am. I, I'm, I'm very intentional. No, I believe me. I know you're uh, intentional about, about, I don't want people. I don't want people to think I'm like the evangelical science savior that's going to make redeem a theistic god through science. Uh, yeah. So, so absolutely, I can't control the way people receive my work, but yeah, I, no. I am careful. Um, You're not trying to spin it. I'm not trying to spin it. I, I honestly, my my last five years of my life have been a practice of being as absolutely honest rigorous, yeah. and rigorous in my public dialogue as I possibly can be. So how's your wife doing? Like, cause you, like with this, like, like you've re-embraced language, mm-hmm. you're tricking your brain, mm-hmm. but that also makes you easier for her to listen to. She's probably m- less a believer than I am at this point. And less a believer than she was when you first had this crisis. Both of us much more. My wife is an actual person. Um, so her religious and spiritual identity are communal in nature. So she tends to kind of just embody the center of gravity of whatever our social grouping is. Um, so when we were in the Baptist church, she she was a Baptist, and then we left the Baptist church, and the, she had an extreme sense of disenfranchisement because she had no community. So then we joined the Methodist church, and at first... She because she didn't feel socially right. involved. She didn't. The theology didn't relate to her. But then, as we became more and more Methodist, the more comfortable she came with she's, Eucharist again. She's every tribe. She's a, every tribe needs needs her. Right, right. She, my my wife is the is an example of what has kept this species viable. <laughs> she's the reason we're here. Um, and that and I want to be very clear. Jenny is a bright person. Right. She's very intelligent, but she she doesn't. <laughs> deceive herself the same way I do and decide and pretending her beliefs are rational no, no, no. Yeah, in nature. Right. Jonathan Haidt, the elephant in the brain or the elephant in the rider. Yes. Like the really smart person goes like, Hey, I'm smart enough to know that I'm riding an elephant. Right. You know, it's, 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 it's only the idiot that goes like, I'm steering this elephant. I, I've for most of my life pretended the elephant wasn't there. That's what I'm saying. And she's just like, yeah, I'm on an elephant. And I trust the elephant. 
Yeah. I believe the elephant. And the elephant wants to have friends wherever it is. The elephant wants to walk with other elephants. Yeah. And so it's yep. going to it's going to get in line, it's going to do that stuff and like, you know what? My elephant has been good to me. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that's the thing. Like and and the weird thing is sometimes somebody thinks like if you're not thinking deep thoughts about like your eternal um your your existential reality, you know, like it's like my wife like she doesn't work on that level as much either. She's she can kind of go a lot of different ways that way depending on who she's mm -hmm. with but like you know try to organize an event for 1500 people in a week and a half and she will put on an incredibly sophisticated mm -hmm. kind of organizational thinking to make that event happen and you go like yeah she's not unintelligent She's just like she's willing to trust the elephant. She a has more. the intelligence that got us to civilization yeah. and kept it going. The kind of like hyper prefrontal, right. analytical, obsessed reasoning that's only been a viable survival strategy. Like a re industrial revolution, post industrial revolution, uh, at scale, information yeah. economy, certainly. Like the, the way I think is the aberration. Yeah. Um and and if resources get scarce. Well and, and I don't know if you ever read that book, uh, The Brain at Work, but that talks about like different kinds of intelligences mm -hmm. and that the like the the US Senator looks at the waitress in the in and the, the short order cook and thinks they couldn't do what I do, mm -hmm. but I could do what they do. Like like I'm, you know, like I just am not interested in in learning that. And that that my dad used to sometimes say it to me. And finally, I was like, "Look, you're completely wrong. You couldn't do your secretary's job if you're literally if your life depended on it. Right. It's a different kind of thinking. Right. And the fact that yours is more highly rewarded in our society, in no way means that you, that because you can do the more highly paid job, you could also do the more lowly paid job. I have never spent as much time and failed at something as I have trying to cook. I've invested significant man hours in trying to learn to prepare my own food, and it's just not there. And to time four dishes. Four, exactly. Yeah, that, that... And she does it with an effortless grace. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's what I mean. Like, she, she's... My wife is a more viable homo sapien than I and, and coming back around to that, like, how do you build a community? Yes. The most important person in a community is not necessarily the person who's in the leadership role. As a matter of fact, number ones are a lot easier to find mm -hmm. than people who can cook for 50 people. Right. Right? And, and so, but, 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 but there is a role in a community the person who throws the best party is not the best cook hmm. and not the best DJ and not the best interior designer. They're the person who's the best at getting the cook and the interior designer to see a vision for the party that they're trying to throw and get them to do their thing. So it's a very specific role that the orchestra leader plays, that the, that the institutional leader plays. And they may not be as good at their job as all the people that are doing it for them, but there's, oh, and that's the thing that the, that the post-Christians 
are terrified of. They're terrified of anyone being in that role. Mm. And the key is, is if the person in that role understands that they couldn't cook if their life depended on it, they will be a much better leader of cooks. Mm. If they understand that they, that they don't know how to pick the songs that get people dancing, they will, they will communicate much better with the DJ. And so that, like, that's what I consider to be like the thing that I know how to do pretty well is I'm able to like talk about the party in such a way that people are like, that sounds like a good party. And then I'll be like, and then I can like enlist people to do different things in it. But I'm not really a good deliverer of food, music, physical layouts and stuff like that. I, you know, and so like when I love the way you're talking about, about Jenny, because it makes me feel like, oh, like that's the thing when you're standing up in front being the guy that everybody's focusing on if you think that makes you <laughs> the most important person in uh, your community yes. then your community's in big trouble the irony of the ask science mike event on the ticket it says see science mike what i am intimately aware of those events happen because of people the audience never really encounters. That's right. You know what I mean? It's uh, my agent putting up the ticket sales together. Uh, it's it's the volunteers at that church who got everything ready. Who, you know what I mean? And that, that when I was in corporate America, and I was in management, um, I had imposter syndrome for a long time until I made the flip of like, I'm not in charge because I'm the best at any of these things because I'm not I'm you're the best at being in charge I'm a fas my job is to f help these people do the things they do yeah I'm 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 a collective assistant to all these right. and, that, and, and, and and that's that that's that beautiful <laughs> sort of servant egalitarian leader thing but the thing that I the thing that I'm rebelling against now okay thing that I'm rebelling against is I'm not the best at any of these things, but I am the best at being in charge. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Just as you should not, just as a person in charge should not look down at the cook and say, we don't need a cook. Anyone could cook. I could cook if I wanted to. Bullshit. But you know what? The person who's the cook shouldn't say, you know what? We just need a DJ and a cook. And stuff. We don't need anybody in charge. We don't need anybody in charge of this thing. Like we can do this ourselves. Not true. Somebody that's another gift. Mm -hmm. And 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 people that are good at a lot of different things, if, if a bunch of people get together and say like, we've had bad people in charge, so we're just not gonna have people in charge. You don't really need people in charge. In a sense, I feel like they're looking at me and saying, hey Bart, people like you, nobody needs you. Mm. You're not valuable. You're In fact, you're the problem. You're what screws up every group I've ever been a part of is the person like you. I don't want a charismatic person. I don't want somebody who's easy to listen to. I don't want somebody who, who, who like sees the room and feels the room. Like, like we don't need it. You know what? I don't say that about the cooks. Mm -hmm. I don't say that about the DJs. I don't say that about the janitor. Why are you saying that about me? Hmm. You know? And, that, and that's where I feel like a, a lot of the secular movement has been. Is you've got a lot of people out there that are like, you know what? We need scientists, we need this, we need that, we need the other. And you go like, what about the people that can create emotionally resonant experiences that remind us as to why we're, 
why, why, why we need to care about each other. And you're like, yeah, we don't need that. Hmm. Had enough of that. And I want to say like, you know what? I'm looking around right now at college campuses, looking at a lot of depressed people, a lot of anxious people, a lot of lonely people. A lot of people spend a lot of time on their computers and not a lot of time face-to-face. -face. A lot of people that haven't developed empathy because there's no social context in which for them to like sort of see, bump shoulders and see how they interact with you. And I'm going, you know what? I think maybe we do need some people mm -hmm. to create some spaces where people see themselves as family and call each other brother and sister and talk about the, the noble mission that we're on. Mm. And, uh, you know, like, so like, I, I, like I'm unapologetic about that so long as the person doing that recognizes that they, don't, they, can't, they couldn't cook a meal if yeah. their life depended on it. There has to be accountable leadership. Yeah. Leadership is dangerous when it veers into authoritarianism. Yeah. And, and, but the, the problem is- Accountable, we, accountable and removable. Removable. And the, the, the problem we have, I think, right now in many- movements not just secularism is the conflation of authoritarianism and leadership yeah with fantastic cases why people conflate them um, but that doesn't mean leadership is a fundamentally flawed system or structure no no it doesn't and i you know i, I think i you know but you know it's one of the reasons i'm not a big fan of straight democracy right now because you know we were talking about like <laughs> like i'm just not sure that i'm not sure that given the sophistication of communication tools that are available to people right now um and that it's safe to just let people like the whoever gets the most votes hmm. gets to lead the country I'm thinking that maybe how else would you do it? I don't know. That's I don't know. So like I share the concern. Yeah. I can't think of a single Well, I think we're going to find out. I think we're going to find out. I think we're going to find out. I mean, cuz right now, I mean, we ha we're already finding out. Like what we don't have the people with the most votes went run the country. We have <laughs> what we have like no, and I right. I'm not that's not just a play on the no, electoral it's, congress. It's but more, it, no, absolutely. But it's whoever whoever gives them whoever has the most campaign finance. Right wins the election right now. Yes. And, uh, and, and, and you're seeing what you get. Every when, dollar gets a vote. <laughs> yeah. You're seeing what you get when the, when the, when the people with the most wealth pick mm -hmm. our, pick our, our, our leaders. And so I think we've got to come up with something that's not the, not the one and not the other. Mm -hmm. Um, there, there, there has to be some way in which, um, yeah, there, I, 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 I have, I, I'm not, that's where Karl Popper's like, He's he's given me the goal, but not the, uh, like, I don't know how to get there. I don't know how to get there, but but I do know that like, I think we're gonna find out because I think you're in the late stages of two party democracy in the United States of America. I totally agree. Yeah, totally. Yeah, agree. I think it's coming to an end, and and probably should. Well, if you don't want the other thing to come to an end, if you don't like, if you don't want the entire planet to come the life on this planet to come to an end early mm -hmm. then probably demo, probably that kind of democracy needs to come to an end right. sooner than later yeah i uh, agree yeah big problem and, and you know but i mean ultimately the, the to me the great the great battle will be 
the people versus and and I'm not ta- I'm not talking about the people outside of corporations versus the people that run corporations. I'm talking about humanity as a whole against an a structure that emerged called a multinational corporation mm-hmm. that consumes not only all the resources of the planet but that consumes the very people that work for it. Like I don't think like corporations have taken on a life of their own and they are like people are talking about AI as the enemy. Like AI, there's going to be this huge force that like, and they won't be human and they might like, there is already a huge force and it is not human and it does not respect national boundaries and it does not care about the future. It has no grandchildren. And that like, that to me is the great political struggle because I feel like the corporations have now, have now taken control of government and they're more powerful than governments and they, they choose governments. And so... The, the only unifying principle in my politics is anti-corporatism. Yeah. I, and I say that as someone who worked for a multinational. Yeah, who'd you work for? <laughs> oh, you can't say it? I'll just, I'll just not include that in the podcast. A multinational. Episode. I worked for a multinational corporation. Yeah. And um, He's writing it down right now. No, I just, Walmart. You know, no, I'm kidding. You don't, you, <laughs> you don't want to necessarily draw yeah. the ire of those no, beasts by don't. naming them by name. That's true. They could shut you down in a heartbeat. They, you know, people are like, oh, you say so much so freely. No, I don't fear the church. <laughs> <laughs> but companies, yeah, yeah. Uh, they've, they've got quite an arsenal. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm very... Did you ever read that book, When Corporations Rule the World by David Corton? No, I feel like I maybe could have written it, but I it's, haven't. It was it. written like twenty five years ago. Wow! And it, like all of it's it, it, and it's 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 one of the, it's one of those liberal, breathless, like too much, too much. Hmm. But the core understanding is like this is what a corporation is, yep. and this is why it is unaccountable and dangerous. Hmm. It's really a really interesting book ahead of its time. Yeah, because twenty five years ago we were just getting into like corporations are amazing. I know. <laughs> yeah. It, it, so, yeah. So it's funny because, like, for for years, like, I was like, "There's only one political issue that matters in the world, and that's campaign finance. Mm-hmm. And if you lose on campaign finance, you've lost everything." Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of feel like we have lost on we campaign have finance. Lost on campaign finance. Yeah. So. And we are in the process of losing everything as a result. On that bleak note. Yeah. So I sat often talked to groups of pastors at their request because they're a discouraged bunch. Um, when I talk to pastors, there's, it's either evangelicals who I'm meeting with in secret or mainline pastors who they're trying to tell every millennial within 150 miles of their church, we like Science Mike too. Uh, but what they sh- all share in common <laughs> is an overwhelming sense of discouragement. And so what I always tell pastors who are very often deeply concerned by secularism, who part of my work is like, hey, Christians, secularism is not your enemy. Um, I always tell them, don't worry. There's no secular answer to pastoral care. The way that the work you do that's most powerful is hospital visits and funerals and facilitating people gathering together. And what I have heard today is I've been lying, yeah, and I'm really excited about that. So I hope that you continue to be successful and that more people in the, the secular movement understand the need 
for your role in human society. Because detached from the violence of exclusionary theology, I feel like pastoral care is freed to be its point of highest value and contribution to society. Yeah. Pastoral care, prophetic speaking, like emotionally resonant music, like the idea of saying, hey, the data has shown us that the people that thrive and that cause others to thrive are always the same. They're always people that have a handful of loving relationships that, that are doing work that on some level they believe makes things better for other people. And that's why they're doing it. Mm. And who religiously or regularly cultivate a sense of gratitude and a sense of wonder, a sense of like standing in awe of something bigger than themselves and feeling part of something bigger than themselves. Like that experience of being overawed, of being full of wonder, of of marveling at your hand or or, or a sunset people that have those things like those are the ones that thrive and pastoral care and speaking and music and youth work Mm. and book writing and podcasting that the idea that like that and anything that we do that enables people to build loving relationships that creates a context where people can find that those kind of relationships and then and it creates a context where they can do that work and be encouraged in that work and be reminded that in in the face of a society that says that your work is valuable if it is well paid says no no actually your work is valuable if you're making people's lives better hmm. like whether you're a scientist or or, or 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 a waitress like there's a way and that are getting together and swapping books and swapping songs and looking at slides and show, going on hikes and sort of saying like, isn't it amazing to be a conscious sentient human being? Mm. Like, like when you figure out, when I tell you the story of how your finger came to work, you're going to just, your head's going to explode with joy. Mm. And so like pastoral care is like helping people stay in that. And good music is, rem- is helping people stay in that. And, you know, good podcasting is helping people stay in that. And I'm, I'm just, I'm just really, I'm, I'm very grateful to the people that steered me in your direction mm. because I, I think it's always so encouraging when we find some, when we find somebody who's in our, in our, in our space, but also like for me, what's as encouraging to me about you is the fact that so many people are responding. Hmm. Like that's just really exciting because you and I both know that they're not, they're not, res- they're, I mean, part of them is responding to you as a person, but part of them is responding to an approach right. that they recognize and they go, there's hope there. There's life there. Um, and there's, and there's nobody telling me I have to believe something that's frankly unbelievable there. And, um, yeah, so I mean, like, I'm encouraged. Are you encouraged? I'm super encouraged. I'm super encouraged. My hope is that they're much more responding to an approach than a person, but, um, but I'm encouraged. But but when I'm like like not to not to take a good ending and wreck it, but like what I'm telling you is like, 
it's okay if they're responding to a person. Throughout history, the way this stuff gets done is people hmm. articulate vision. Totally. And other people come around it and, artic and, and, and actualize that vision. And then if those people get crazy, we get rid of them. But like, it's okay that they're responding to you as a person. That's all people have ever responded sure. to. Yeah. But I, I mean, have you seen Hamilton? No. With Manuel Miranda's Hamilton. It's amazing. It's not overrated no matter what you've heard. No, I, that, it, I, I'm hearing you. It, it's incredible. Uh, and there's a line in there um, where he's talking about um, the song is about the, the compromise to move the capital. It's called In the Room Where It Happens. Um, and he says, I want to create something that's going to outlive me is, is the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so even though, you know, people were enraptured with Alexander Hamilton, the person, the idea of this kind of market economy, long after no one knew who he was, kept going. Outlived him. And so I am comfortable being a stand-in for the idea for now, but I will be very disappointed if my work is just associated with my identity and my body and my voice. 50 years from now. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's funny. A lot of my evangelical friends, the older ones, yes, they're in a lot of pain right now because the idea that they gave their lives to mm -hmm. is A, looking like it might not outlive them. Mm -hmm. But worse than that is looking like the form in which it is outliving them is ugly. Yeah. And it's very painful to have given your life to a movement and to see that movement go off the, go off the trail. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, and, and so I, I know a lot of people that they're feeling like, what was my work about? And what I end up keep saying to them is like, look, within your work, there were people that you went to the hospital. There were people that you introduced to their husbands or their wives. There, there's work. There, there's people that were inspired to live meaningful lives. Like, mm -hmm. like the fact that it all gets, if your movement doesn't outlive you, there was still something there. But it's very painful when you mm -hmm. see your movement go in mm -hmm. the wrong direction. It's really hard. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know. Yeah, it's... it's you know, I, I, one of the things I sometimes think is like, I love... Like, I had this bike crash where I almost died. And when I came back, I had that classic experience of like, the food tasted better. Mm -hmm. And the air was sweeter. And like, every day... And like, I kept waiting for that to go away. Because, you know, people tell you like, it goes away. And it never did. Like, because I embraced secularism on the other side of that. Sure. And and, sure. and that turned me on, let, that, that brought in a whole bunch of other stuff. And so like, I just keep being wowed. Mm. But like, I love this life so much. Like I love like eating and I love meeting a friend. And like, you know, people are listening to us and sort of going like, oh, wow. These guys are like, they're discovering that they like each other. Yeah. And go like, yeah, that's absolutely true. And, uh, I love having sex with my wife. It's really something extraordinary. And like, she was sick for a long time. I didn't think we might ever do that again. And then when we did, like every time we do it, it's like, I never thought that would happen again. Wow. Um, and so if you say to me like, Bart, there's this outside chance that because of this podcast that you and Mike did, somebody will hurt and they'll live a little bit differently and that'll put the planet on just a slightly different trajectory. And like, one more kid will get born somewhere with an opportunity to grow up and fall in love mm -hmm. and get married 
and eat food and have sex and all this stuff. I go like, and you won't be there, man. Your, your existence will be gone. You will have been reabsorbed into the universe and, and your idea, like, you'll, ne- you'll, ne- but like, does that, what's that worth if you're not there? And I go like, oh, just thinking about it now makes me excited now. Right. So the future, the possibility of that future impact makes this moment more beautiful. Like, isn't that a beautiful thought that, that somewhere there might be a person that will experience life mm-hmm. because of what we did? Mm-hmm. And I go like, that's how my plumber friend fe- you know, needs to feel. That's, that's how, that's how you know, a waitress needs to feel like, like maybe I'm encouraging somebody and because of me, they'll live a little bit differently. Like, and maybe because they teach differently, that kid will become an ambulance driver and that ambulance driver will save this person and this person will end up meeting this person and they'll get married to that person and they'll have this kid and that kid will have a life that's worth living. Mm. Mm. And if you, like, if you, like, people say, like, don't you, aren't you scared of dying? And I go, like, yeah. I mean, like, I guess, not really. Yeah, it used to be. But they say, but don't you love life? And I go, like, yeah, yeah. I don't just love my life. I love the whole thing. Mm. And so like the thing that scares me is life dying. Mm. That that's the thing that I that, that that makes me think like could we work a little harder? Could we do a little more? Yeah. Love a few more people? Yeah. You know, cuz like this thing that we're doing, this consciousness even when it's terrible people scratch and claw to get another minute of it because mm. it's that wonderful. Mm. You know what I mean? Like it's so precious. And so, yeah, like I, I'm, I, you know, like if, if, if they're attracted to you as a person or if they're attracted to these ideas, like whatever it is that's happening, the fact that all these people are being moved to try harder to love their lives Get out of here. That's a big deal. Best job in the world. (laughs) No, it really is. It really is. Yeah. It really is. All right. That was me and Mike McCarg, a.k.a. Science Mike, who you can find on the internet really easily. Just ask Science Mike or the liturgists. Um, We'll have links on bartcampola.org, which is where you can find me and where you can send me a note letting me know what you think. Um, I'll be back soon with another episode, but in the meantime, be, be, I don't want to tell you what to do, but what I would say is like, if you are, if you're thinking about the improbable wonder of existing in the first place, be grateful because there's a lot to be grateful for. See you next time. For more information about the work of Bart Campolo, please visit barcampolo.org.